Good morning, 1548 Heights members and friends online and in person. Grace and peace to you in abundance. What a special day this is for Angela and me. And let me just say at the outset, thank you so much for giving us one more thing to take up to Seattle with us. You know, we were looking around our house at all the stuff, and we said, we don't have enough. We hope the church gives us something to take with. So if you have any plants or anything, you know, uh, we just take it. We, 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 we'll, we'll take it up to Seattle with us. Uh, honestly, I, I feel a little bit like George Bailey from one of my favorite movies. It's a Wonderful Life. Anyone? Yeah? Look, here's all his friends gather around, and it's so special. And so many of our friends from the last 20 years in Houston have come today and we're honored by that as well as our usual church of uh, 1548 Heights church family. Now there's only one thing missing that's in this picture, a big old pile of cash. Uh, but you know, that may be forthcoming, I don't know. Our mission at 1548 Heights is to be a ch transforming church, changing lives for God and for good in the world as God transforms us into the image of Jesus. And it has been wonderful to be on mission with you for the last eight years. You know, early on in our time here, seeking to kind of inspire our little flock, I came up with a sort of a slogan maybe or a motto, I don't know what it's called, but uh, piggybacking on the success of the Astros, I started saying, we are the Jose Altuve of churches, small but powerful, amen? And I said, friends, we are a turbocharged mustard seed in the kingdom of God. Now, that metaphor doesn't make sense, but don't worry about that, okay? And, and so I want to highlight two things that a group of guys gave me to, as we were going away a Jose Altuve jersey and uh, a little jar of mustard seeds. Isn't that sweet? You know? And I told my brothers, you realize when I wear this jersey in Seattle, who has been the uh, subject of many beatings by the Astros, I'm, I'm pretty much going to get assault, uh, assaulted. And they said, suffer the Suffer for the cause, brother. Suffer for the cause. I don't know. I don't know. We are actually going to have a message today. It's not just going to be remembrances and, and thanks, although there will be some of that. About a month ago, I was just doing my usual Bible reading, and I started reading Hebrews. And I don't know what it was, but this first four verses just captured me, and, and, and I said, this is what I'm going to preach on my last Sunday at 1548 Heights. And it captured me, and, and I do think it has a word for us. So as we always do, we're going to read the Word of God together. Uh, in your bulletin, you have a place, not an outline today with points, but the Scripture printed and uh, places to take notes. If you find that helpful, I invite you to, to avail yourself of that. Listen to the Word of God. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom 
he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thanks be to God for his word and for his living word, Jesus Christ. He sustains all things by his powerful word. What a declaration. The verb that uh, we read here is, is not a big highfalutin verb. It's just a verb that means to carry along or, or to bear a load. Some of the other ways this is translated is he upholds all things. He maintains and propels all things. He holds everything together. He is the upholding principle of everything. And we're reminded of what we read in Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It helps to understand a little bit about the context of this letter we call Hebrews. Uh, No one really knows who the author is. Everybody knows it's not Paul, but there's a a lot of possibilities Uh, It's the most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament, bar none. I mean, Luke's a distant second, Luke Acts. But this is really sophisticated stuff. I mean, you got John, God is love. Jesus is light. Walk in the light. (laughs) And then you've got Hebrews. I mean, and so you know the author is well-educated. And it takes the form of a sermon, uh, for better and for worse, right? (laughs) You know, in fact, it is meant to be heard much more than read. It is an oral presentation that is uh, recorded in writing. I frankly think the author is Apollos. And, you know, that's one of the possibilities, but I'm most confident that it's Apollos, and I think Apollos is a cool name. But in Acts 6, 18, we read this. Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. On his arrival in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had become believers, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. And that is, in a sense, what this writer is doing, uh, showing that the Messiah is Jesus and making the case to Jewish Christians. And that is who the recipients are. Uh, Apparently, a group or a movement of Jewish Christians. We don't know if it's one group in one town or scattered all over, but there's so much reference to the Old Testament, so much reference to how Jesus follows and supersedes all that has come before that it's obviously written to people with a Jewish background. Now, following Tom Long and his peerless commentary, I'm going to refer to the author as the preacher. Now, that sounds a little self-aggrandizing, but 
it's, it, it, it sort of fits. It's, it's really a sermon more than a letter. First of all, after 13 chapters, he says, I have written to you briefly. <laughs> Preachers never know when we preach long, right? <laughs> oh, it's been a joy to write to you, you know. Uh, and there's just this cadence, this cadence. Well, what is the purpose of this letter? The recipients are tired. They're weary. They're, they're, they're considering just drifting back to the synagogue, which was mainstream for them. They're part of a little sect, a movement. It's not established. And it would be so much easier just to go back to the synagogue. And so he writes to encourage them to keep on keeping on. Tom Long puts it this way. It's a few paragraphs, but it's so beautiful. He says, the the preacher's congregation is exhausted. They're tired, tired of serving the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being peculiar and whispered about in society, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going, tired even of Jesus. Their hands droop and their knees are weak. Attendance at church is down and they're losing confidence. The threat to this congregation is not that they are charging off in the wrong direction. They do not have enough energy to charge off anywhere. The threat here is that worn down and worn out, they will drop their end of the rope and drift away. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk, leaving the community and falling away from faith. The preacher is bold enough, maybe even brash enough, to think that Christology and preaching are the answers. He preaches to the congregation in complex theological terms about the nature and meaning of Jesus Christ. And you know, friends, Hebrews is a great message for Christians in America. Hebrews is a great message for Christians in America because so many Christians are tired and so many have drifted away. I read about a month ago and blogged a few times about it, a book called The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? By Jim David and Michael Graham with Ryan Burge. And they, they talk about how since the early 90s to now, 40 million people have drifted away from active participation in the local church. And let me tell you something. If you, if you say we go, we, you say in the survey, we go on Christmas and Easter, they don't consider you de-churched. Okay. If you go one time a year, they don't consider you de-churched. They tried to be as inclusive as possible, and yet 40 million people have left the church. Now, there's some sad news and some good news in this. The sad news is about a quarter of those left because they were hurt, they were traumatized, they were very disappointed in something, they were victims of abuse. It's a, it's a, a terribly, terribly sad thing that a 
institution or an organization, if you will, that is meant to love and care for and encourage people can often be the source of abuse and uh, harm. And that 25% uh, probably aren't coming back. Uh, maybe a special work of God, always a special work of God, but they didn't just drift away. They were hurt. Now, the glad news is the other three quarters, 30 million people, get this, didn't intend to drift away from the church. They just sort of drifted away. They didn't say, we're going to leave the church. They just, you know, life happened. And the three most common reasons for drifting away from the church, first, was that they moved and just never got reconnected with the church. Second, church became increasingly inconvenient for their life. And third, there was a major life event, like a divorce or a, maybe a death in the family. Now, here's the stunning news. 51% of that three quarters, you got all this, Richard? You taking the data down, brother? Okay. 51% of this three quarters says we intend to come back sometime and really are waiting just to be invited, not invited once, hey, come to church, but being invited and brought and welcomed and, uh, and initiated into the life of people who love and care for them. And so there's a, some good news in this tremendous social happening, which, by the way, uh, the 40 million people is more than the three greatest periods of church growth brought into the church. So it's, we're in quite a challenge. I was uh, corresponding with a, a young person. We would call them sort of a young professional age. And praise God, they are now reconnected to the church and uh, apparently reconnecting in their faith and in, in a wonderful way. But they were explaining to me in writing, we were corresponding, that there was like a 10-year period after high school where they just were not part of it. And they used a word that really st stuck out at me. They, they didn't say, you know, this was a decade of indifference. Uh, they talked about the disdain they felt for the church and for organized religion. And I just kind of wonder, where does that come from, the disdain? <laughs> And so it won't be easy, friends, to those of us who want to help reconnect people who have drifted away. And, and I will say that many of uh, us in here who are old enough to have adult children know the sadness we feel that when our children are not part of the church, they've drifted away and they apparently have no interest. I went to an interim ministry well, let me show you this slide. This is really a stunning thing, the, this graph. You could, probably can't see the numbers, but this is from 1940 to 2020. And in 1940, all the way to about 2000, 
it was very consistent. 73% of Americans were actively involved in a church, synagogue, or mosque. And of course in America, 95% of that is churches. But all very steady. And in 2000, it starts going down. And so in the last 23 years, it's gone from 70% to 47%. How do you explain that? I don't know. The internet, who knows? The, the authors do a really good job of just breaking it down and interviewing people and talking about it. But that's sort of the social phenomenon that has taken place. I was at an inter-ministry training uh, earlier this week, uh, being trained in how to do inter-ministry uh, in the event that that's one of the things I end up doing in Seattle. I don't know what I'm going to do in Seattle yet, except take care of the little bear cubs, all right? I try to sell Angela on the plan of you work, and I just be with the grandkids. She said, I don't think so. <laughs> but I don't have anything lined up yet. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of scary, but it's kind of, yeah, I don't know. There's just a feeling of, Lord, here I am. Here I am. But at any rate, I went to this interim minister workshop so I can do that. And listen to this. Between 2015 and 2018, every month, nine churches closed and 2,000 adherents left the church. Every month in those three years. That was just the church Christ. And that was pre-COVID. Wow. It's a social phenomenon going on. And you know, uh, every church, well, there's a life cycle for churches. I kind of feel it's a life cycle for people in their spiritual life too. So take note. Let's see it here. It starts at launch. Momentum growth, strategic growth, sustained health, maintenance. When you're at maintenance, you're already on the down curve. Preservation and then life support. And so many churches these days are in preservation or life support. You know, uh, there's, a new, there's an organization called Heritage 21. focuses mainly on Churches of Christ. And they estimate that uh, Churches of Christ own $3.5 billion worth of property you know, in the United States. And in the next five to ten years, 1.5 billion of that will be sold because the church is closing. And their mission is to help churches do it redemptively. You know, come to, fact, uh, come to an awareness that this, it's okay. Church, you know, it's not a failure to die unless you die without uh, a redemption in some way and so they help churches sell the property and start new churches and things like that uh, like in one city one church in a strategic area like the Heights the building was sold and with that money they started five new church plants and so they took it from life support to launch and you know as I reflect on our eight years at at 1548 Heights, and I'm going to do a little more of that in a minute. You know, this is what I would suggest. Uh, do I have that slide, Eric? Yeah. You know, we were kind of on life support in 2015. 
Ann Bayless was holding it all together with a, a group of faithful Christians. How many of you were here at the end of uh, 2015? Uh, Carol, Yvonne, Nancy, Bruce, Lena. Yeah. And what we did in our replant was we kind of moved it over to launch again. And I don't know where we are now. This isn't technical, but maybe we're at momentum growth, strategic go growth. But boy, it's sure nice not to be on life support anymore. And so I want to reflect a little bit on these eight years. As I said, Anne was the, uh, faithfully ministering to the flock here and wondering what the future is going to hold. And, and, and they were apparently praying for Angela and me. And she called Angela many times, and Angela didn't take the call. I know that feeling. <laughs> uh, but finally, Angela took the call, and Anne, you know, explained, that the Lord revealed to me that you and Matt are in a wilderness time. And that's exactly the word that uh, Angela and I had been using to describe my two and a half years out of ministry. And so we agreed to listen. <laughs> and... Once we listen to Anne, I mean, you know, we're, we're coming. <laughs> we're coming. She was very compelling. And I still remember long before we really had a plan, uh, my dear friend Jerry Cox and I met for breakfast at Mademoiselle, some French place. I don't know. You remember that, Jerry? Jerry's going, oh, yeah. No, he has about 50,000 breakfasts a, a year. But... Uh, and Jerry just put down a check on the table from his and Kay's foundation and said, if you decide to do this and raise support, we're in. Well, I really wanted to go to Cabo, but it was made out to the church, you know. <laughs> and so, well, I guess we'll raise outside support and make a go of this. And so First Colony gave me a nice check. That's where we were worshiping at the time and started raising support and Many of you were part of our support team. Thank you. Thank you. And after two years of that financial support, we were financially self-sufficient as a church because God br brought key strategic people. And I just want to thank and commend the three couples who came with us, Bill and Joycelyn Morris, uh, Wade and Karen Harlan, and, and Matt and Debbie Clark. Yes, friends, they all came from the burbs to the wild and woolly city to help us uh, uh, relaunch this work. And, and, and I just compiled some slides, you know. Uh, Anne, is it okay to say it was grim? The people weren't grim, but it was grim. <laughs> uh, so here's a picture of the parking lot when we started, you know. And then one day... Some trucks pulled up. And I said, what are you doing? Well, Bill and Joycelyn Morris uh, told us to landscape this parking lot and restripe the cement. Whew. Wow. And, you know, we had this downstairs thing. We, <laughs> we didn't even have the heart to call it a fellowship hall. It was the basement. And during Hurricane Car Harvey, here, here's a picture. I mean, it flooded. Oh, it's gross. And Ann and Kim Martinez and I are down there, you know, in our rubber boots. And 
The Spirit of the Lord struck Anne, and she said, we're going to pull this nasty carpet out of here. And we did. And next thing you know, Mr. and Mrs. Bill and Joycelyn Morris have sent a crew down, and look, new floors, new floors. The basement becomes a fellowship hall, and everybody here can attest, woe be unto you if you call it a basement. It's a fellowship hall. And then we had this, I don't know, this little sign. Every week I'd go out there and try to put a new message on it. And, and uh, then next thing you know, Joycelyn commissions an artist and we've got the church at 1548 Heights. And wait, it's night lit. Let's see a picture. A beacon of light and warmth. Oh. But friends, this did not come about just because of financial generosity. We had work days. Yes, Melissa Ferguson there, caring for the plants. Matt Clark, I don't know what you were doing, Matt. <laughs> we were cleaning out the drains. I mean, it used to flood in here every time it rained. And then the big project, the sanctuary, not the auditorium. That's old thinking. The sanctuary. We don't have a before picture but here it was in process. All done, some outside gifts, but the generosity of this congregation. And then the new sanctuary with the in-house prophetess, Ann Bayless. <laughs> and let me tell you, uh, then the day, the first day we had the children up front uh, doing a song for us. Oh, there's nothing sweeter in a church than children. Do you know we didn't have children when we started? I used to say to these young couples, let's go, man, let's go. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but we said we're going to start paying nursery workers every Sunday for when guests come and have children. And we did. It was the sweetest gig in Houston. Just sit back there on your iPhone nothing to do but then children started showing up some of them were homegrown you like that like homegrown terrorists you know some of them were imported we didn't care so much about the parents you got kids welcome and and, and now it's happening the beautiful children's ministry and to to parrot the preacher in chapter 11, verse 32. And what more should I say? Time would fail me to tell in detail of our first baptisms. You see, we didn't have a functioning baptism when we started. There were so many leaks. Well, it, a church got to be baptizing people. So I got on Amazon, and I bought a, 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 a horse trough for $150. And we had our first three baptisms in a horse trough. Tracy Jusen was one of them. Do you remember how cold that water was, Tracy? Yes. But the, the heat of the Holy Spirit had a chemical reaction with the coldness and the fusion. Of, it just energized you. You still feel it, don't you? She's going, yeah, yeah. And then Wade and I, Wade Harlan and I drove his truck up to Lufkin and we bought a baptismal. Isn't that great? You just buy a baptismal, you know? And brought it back in his truck, and we plunked it right down in the, in, in the middle of this one, and now we've got a baptismal. 
Time would fail me to tell in detail, friends, of our four mission partners. We decided earlier on we're going to tithe outward. Tithe outward because we believe the tithe is such a powerful concept. And so we, we began selecting mission partners to receive our tithe, and we would also be involved with them. And so eventually we became partners with Heights Interfaith Ministries, Food Pantry, Main Street Ministries, Arms of Hope, and Mark and Allie Kaiser in E2 Brazil. And now we work together and financially help them. Time would fail to me to tell, friends, of the elevator which didn't work. It was the oldest hydraulic elevator in Houston, but it didn't work. And so we had an in-house fundraiser, and we raised $65,000 for a new elevator. What do you do with an old elevator? I wanted to put it out on the curb, see if anyone got it. And so we had the oldest hydraulic elevator in Houston. Now we have the newest, shiniest, slowest elevator in Houston. But it's great because you get on it and you punch the button just to go 15 feet up to the second floor and you have a time of fasting and prayer during, during that. Time would fail me to tell in great detail, friends, of the creed and the deed. Yes, our deed had a stipulation that we couldn't use instruments in worship or the building would be given to the nearest church of Christ. Well, Robert Beasley, an elder at the First Colony Church of Christ, said, I can, I can refer you some lawyers who can help you with that, who work on that kind of thing a lot. And they did, pro bono, and through what I can only describe as a miraculous, the miraculous inattention of the Attorney General, who said, I'm just going to sort of let this slide by. We got the deed changed. And so now we have talented worship leaders like Ashton, lead Ashton Worship. Time would fail me to tell in detail of the offices, which were, shall we say, woeful, and led by Carol Leone, our wonderful and talented building superintendent. We refurbished the offices and then the, 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 the children's ministry classrooms. Time would fail me to tell friends of the roof. <laughs> the roof that had more leaks than Congress. And, <laughs> and every time there was a rainstorm, we'd just come up here and think, oh my goodness, you know, where are the new leaks? And, and, and thanks to Wade Harlan kind of constantly pushing the building team, the building team, and now we are fully sealed. Amen? Is that right, Carol? Fully sealed? Yeah, all right. Time would fail me to tell in detail of the cross. For seven years, people said, you know, we ought to have a cross in here. You know, there, this is a sanctuary, there's no cross. And we all said that. And we said it over and over again. And it was just one of those church things. You just say that over and over again. And then Debbie Clark said, I want to commission a cross in memory of my mother. And so we have a cross. And it's positioned strategically in case I go too long, you know. <laughs> but, oh, beautiful things. And time would fail me to tell in detail of our children's ministry, which is blossoming so much and has been the recipient of our 
our wonderful friend and benefactor, Trey Smith, to help us make it uh, really our forward-leaning ministry. And so we, here we are, 1540 Heights, and it's been a beautiful journey. And some of you who aren't part of this fellowship, thank you for your patience in letting me recite all that because it's been, it's been hard. But looking back on it, it's been so satisfying. And now we move to the next chapter. And we have an inner minister who will also serve as a consultant in helping us move through this, this season to search for a, a new full-time preacher and also to help us with issues of congregational vitality and to work with the leadership team. His name is David Fleer, wonderful man, blue chip. I'm telling you, inter interim minister and consultant. He was my preaching professor uh, at ACU. You all are laughing. Is there something? Up? Oh, I only wish I could be as funny as Matt Sober. He didn't actually say that, but... I think he would have wanted to. Well, friends, the preacher tells us some powerful things. For instance, in chapter 13, verse 2, he says, Be hospitable to strangers, for in doing so you may entertain angels without knowing it. Wow. In chapter 13, verse 9, he says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, for it is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Strengthened by grace. Chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Chapter 7, verse 25. He says, consequently, Jesus, our great high priest, is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Is that not mind-boggling that Jesus lives to make intercession for you and me in our times of need, in our times of struggle, and in our general disposition as sinners. Jesus says, that one's with me. That one's with me. And then in chapter 10, verse 18 through 25, what I think is maybe the main message in Hebrews, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, through the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, church is a lot more than a habit, but it is a habit. And the preacher is saying, don't drift away. Don't drift away. He who sustains all things is worth our faith and worth our faith efforts, including his body, the church. May I hear an amen?
for that. And so in closing, aren't those beautiful words when a preacher says in closing? (laughs) Hebrews 11 verse 6. I didn't tell you this story, but many years ago, maybe 30 years ago, there wasn't one moment, but I sort of decided this would be my North Star. That this is what I would try to live into. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And I decided on some level, I'm just going to seek him continually, trusting that God rewards that. He doesn't say how. He doesn't give a formula. But if you keep seeking God through Jesus in the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, there is beauty and joy and goodness and life. And that's the good news, friend. That's the good news. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this letter that acknowledges how easy it is to drift and and, and And we feel that way sometimes. We feel tired sometimes, weary, tired of the church. We thank you for our great high priest, Jesus, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high and lives to make intercession for us and sustains all things by his powerful word. Thank you, Lord. We rejoice and receive that in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.